Amen. That is one of my absolute favorite uh, hymns. So much uh, truth there. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 3 again uh, this morning. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've spent a lot of time reflecting uh, on uh, my time at uh, the Shepherds Conference. Uh, not this past week, but the week prior to that. Uh, such an amazing time of uh, rejuvenation uh, to be uh, fed both uh, physically and spiritually. Uh, and I just usually come back from that conference uh, ready to, uh, to charge uh, straight forward. And uh, as I continue to reflect on uh, the conference, what amazes me is that there's so many little parts that are individual blessings uh, at the conference. The sermons, the music, the book tent, uh, the food, the fellowship the book tent, uh, the shoeshine station, the hospitality, and then did I mention the book tent? And uh, each one of those smaller parts is a blessing. Uh, But then when you begin to look at the whole uh, and begin to see, hey, that there were 4,500 men there at the conference, pastors, elders, church leaders, uh, 4,500. That's a lot. What what seems to be even more amazing and impressive to me as though I as I reflected on it is that uh, there are 1000 volunteers from Grace Community Church that serve at that event each and every year. Think about that. A thousand volunteers uh, who come, uh, who get there very early, who stay late, uh, who come and have a desire uh, to serve and to be a blessing to uh, pastors. Uh, and what makes it even more amazing is this was told us at the end of the conference is many of those volunteers use vacation time to come and do that, to come and serve uh, others. Uh, and it's, it's remarkable when you when you think about that. Sometimes somebody does something for you and you're like, eh, that, that's not that big of a deal. Uh, but but then when you find out more of the details behind it, when you begin to see all of the, the time and energy uh, and forethought uh, that went into doing something to bless you, suddenly your appreciation for what they have done increases, does it not? You begin to see what all it cost them to serve you, to be a blessing to you. And that is certainly the case uh, of the Shepherds Conference for me. And that should also be the case for us as Christians when it comes to understanding our salvation. That we are truly blown away and blessed uh, when we understand the grace of God has worked to save us. But our appreciation and our worship for what God has done for us should only increase as we study God's word. And we, so, we, so see, we, we look behind the curtain, uh, see what all went into our salvation. How much time, energy, forethought and sacrifice was made on our behalf that God has planned our redemption from eternity past. To save a people for himself. And as we come back here to John chapter 3, what we've been looking at is a conversation about the new birth. And that is certainly what what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus. He is pulling back the curtain and, and showing Nicodemus what salvation truly is. Nicodemus has had a wrong understanding of salvation. Uh, living in a in a system and teaching a system of works-based salvation. That if you uh, are a Jew and you, and you do these certain things, you will be saved. But now Jesus is going to correct that understanding. And as we've we've looked in the past at verses 1 through 21 uh, in John chapter 3 are all a single conversation. And really, we could even uh, extend it further back into chapter 2. That John chapter 2 verses 23 24 and 25 serve as an introduction to the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And there's round one of the dialogue, the first exchange between them in verses 1, uh, 2, and 3 of chapter 3. And then what we're going to be looking at this morning is round two of their dialogue. That uh, there's going to be another interchange in these five verses. And then verses 9 through 15 are going to be a third round of dialogue. And then Verses 16 through 21, I think, are going to be a commentary from the Apostle John on what has already been said. But, but read with me uh, John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. We're going to read through 3.8. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part... 
did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The first round of, of dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus, uh, it prompted a great confusion in Nicodemus. And you can tell uh, that in verse 4, when Nicodemus is kind of scratching his head, well, how can a man be born again when he is old? How is that possible? You can't go back into your mother's womb and be born a second time. And Nicodemus's confusion betray his unbelief that he is not truly believing in Jesus and his interpretation of Jesus merely at a, uh, at a, a natural and physical level reminds us of what we saw at the end of chapter 2 as well. That just prior to what we began to read, when Jesus is clearing out the temple, or after he's cleared out the temple, uh, and the religious leaders come up to him and say, hey, what authority are you doing these things by? And he says, well, if you just tear down this temple, uh, I'll, I'll build it up again. And they're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? How can you do that? This temple took 46 years to build this temple. How can you rebuild it in three days, is what Jesus says. That They only take what Jesus says at a, at a surface level. They don't understand the spiritual significance of what he is saying. So this is a, a, a comic uh, confusion, so to speak, that betrays those who do not know Jesus in faith. What Jesus says here that you must be born again. What he has said to Nicodemus in that statement. Take everything that you've built your life on and throw it away. All of your human efforts, all of your human energies, you have been striving after nothing. Take all of that, leave it behind, and understand that your salvation is not dependent upon you. It is dependent upon God saving you. That's what he just told this man who has been living Almost a, a perfect life according to Jewish law. And now, because of this confusion and the understanding of Nicodemus, leads to a second round of dialogue. And Jesus is going to expand and clarify his first statement that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's going to, to explain the what, the why, and the how in this second round. Say, Nicodemus, okay, you didn't understand that. Let me, let me expand it out for you. Dig a little deeper and tell you what I mean. Now, the first round of dialogue, Jesus established that being reborn from above, that's where salvation comes from. Not from anybody on the earth, not through human efforts, but it comes from above. We looked at that word again. It's a word with a double meaning. You must be born again. You must be born from above. What Jesus is going to say here in round two, he's going to go into greater detail about what it means to be born again. And if we were in Nicodemus' sandals, we probably would have asked the exact same question. What do you mean, Jesus? What is it you're talking about? How is this new birth, how is this rebirth possible? And Jesus, as the master teacher answers Nicodemus, and he's going to make four assertions in this second round of dialogue. And each one's going to and our understanding of, of what the new birth entails, what it involves, what the nature of it is. 
And we need to understand these assertions, these, these principles that Jesus is going to, to teach to Nicodemus so that we can better understand what has taken place in our own salvation. And as we understand that, our appreciation and our worship of Christ and all that he has done in our lives will grow and deepen. So let's look at these four uh, assertions about the new birth. The first one is found in verse 5, and it's the nature of the new birth clarified. Look with me at that verse. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus' exclamation, truly, truly, I say to you, he, he, in each round of dialogue, he starts out that way. He says it in verse 3, he says it in verse 5, and he says it again in verse 11, uh, slightly after he begins uh, his response to Nicodemus in verse 10. But in each round of dialogue, Jesus says this, and what he means by it is, hey, I assure you that these things are true. You must believe what I'm about to say to you. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what, what we should do is notice the similarities and differences to what Jesus says here in verse 5 to what he said in verse 3. Very similar verses, but some slight nuances. Okay, We see that born again has now been replaced with you must be born of water and of spirit. And then seeing the kingdom has been replaced with entering the kingdom. So let's look at those differences and nuances just briefly. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? And there's been a a variety of understandings uh, in this verse. Some people would say that it's referring to two births. That uh, you need to be born once in terms of a natural physical birth. And then uh, you must be born a second time by the Spirit. uh, A second supernatural spiritual birth. That's a possibility. Other people see that it's pointing to Christian baptism. And still others others would say, and where I would land, I think it's pointing to uh, a single supernatural birth. And why do I think that? Well, number one would be that this idea of being born of water and spirit is parallel with the idea of being born again or born from above, which entails just one birth rather than uh, two. Uh, And uh, the Greek grammar demands that water and spirit are are a single unit. So if, if Jesus had wanted to say that it was pointing to two different births, a physical and then a supernatural, he would have said, you must be born of water and then of spirit. But it just says of water and spirit, intending to link them together as a single unit. And then if Jesus is pointing to Christian baptism here, Nicodemus would have had no frame of reference for that. Because there is no Christian baptism until Christ is crucified and resurrected and then ascended into heaven. That's when the church begins on the day of Pentecost. So to say to Nicodemus, you need to understand this Christian baptism, which hasn't taken place yet. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And if we look further in verse 10, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Jesus is correcting him. He had an expectation that Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, as a ruler of the Jews, as the teacher in Israel, should have understand these things. Because they are clearly taught in the Old Testament. If you keep your your finger here in John and turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. I believe this is what Jesus is alluding to when he says, hey, you should have understood these things because they are clearly taught, not only in Ezekiel, but elsewhere. But look with me, Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. God speaking to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, speaking about the blessings of something called the new covenant. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
So what's being said there in Ezekiel is that in the new covenant, in the future, what God would do is he would redeem Israel. How is he going to do that? Well, he says that you, they have had what type of heart up until this point in time? A heart of stone. Now, what does a heart of stone feel like? Like a rock, right? Can, can, you, can you shape and mold that rock? Yeah, but you need a chisel and a hammer. Uh, but what about a heart of flesh? You would be able to, uh, to, to move it, to, to hold it, to shape it uh, into something different. And that is the, the picture that God is using to portray. And how is he going to do that? There's going to be a cleansing with water and then his spirit will come and dwell in his people. And that is, I think, what Jesus is saying here to Nicodemus. You need to understand the new birth that is associated with the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's, what, that's how you will understand salvation. That's how, what, what it means to be born again, is to experience that, to be a part of the new covenant. Not trying to earn your salvation by keeping the Old Testament law. And if you're, if you're still there in Ezekiel, what's amazing is God immediately gives an illustration of that in the next chapter, in Ezekiel 37. Look at me at verse 1. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. And it was full of bones. And He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath, which is literally the word spirit, to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. God is speaking about uh, the spiritually dead people of Israel. That's the the illustration here. What represents the the dry bones and what God is saying is I'm going to breathe life into spiritually dead Israel. And is there any way for those bones to come alive without that happening? No. Uh, and again, it points to the new birth. Exactly what Jesus is speaking here uh, with Nicodemus about. And elsewhere in the New Testament, this concept of the new birth, or also synonymous with regeneration, uh, is taught clearly. We read it in our scripture reading today in Titus 3.5, that he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This isn't talked about in in the Gospel of John, but elsewhere in Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, in John the Baptist's uh, prophetic ministry, what he proclaimed was this. This is from Mark chapter one, verses seven and eight speaking. He says, and he preached, saying after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Speaking of regeneration. So John, in his prophetic ministry, says, hey, I'm doing one thing. Jesus is going to do something far greater. He's going to give you new life. I'm just doing this ritual for you. But he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you new life. So in making this statement that you must be born of water and spirit, Jesus is clarifying what it means to be born again, reborn from above. And it means you have to be washed and regenerated by the Spirit of God. The new birth is synonymous with regeneration in which God makes a spiritually dead person into a spiritually alive person. That's what Jesus is saying here. You must be born again, born of water and of spirit. And in, in making this clarification, Jesus is, is digging down a little bit deeper and explaining this to Nicodemus in a way that he can understand. Now, there's a, uh, a surface mining technique uh, known as mountaintop removal. And in this technique, when minerals are discovered near the, the surface of the ground, uh, they just, in essence, start, start taking off layers of, of rock and sediment uh, from the ground in order to get to those minerals. Now, when I was going to school in New Mexico, I lived in this small town 
called Silver City, New Mexico. And you can guess what they mined there. Copper. Uh, and so... Uh, the method that they used was this mountaintop removal technique where they would just take a layer of ground and then take out all of the copper and then they'd dig down deeper and then get all the copper out and then take, dig down deeper. And uh, one of my friends on the football team, he had worked there for years. He'd taken a couple of years off after high school and he went to uh, be a truck driver. And he said it was the worst thing he ever did. He's like, just moving dirt. Uh, and he hated it. He's like, I never want to go back. Uh, but one time, we're out kind of looking for things to do, because there's not much to do in New Mexico. Uh, and he says, hey, well, let's just go look at the mine, something called the Chino Mine. Uh, it's, only, it's actually on the Wikipedia page if you search for surface mining. Massive, massive mine. And uh, he took me up there, and you, and you can go only so far. You go up to this uh, chain-link fence uh, near the edge of it. Uh, and from that chain-link fence, it was so deep, I couldn't see the bottom. So deep. And you ever see those monster uh, Tonka trucks that are like two stories tall? Uh, I saw one way down in the mine. It looked like a little matchbox car uh, from how deep down it was. Uh, and it's just on, along the rim of the mine, you could just see layer upon layer that had been removed, that had been unearthed so that they could dig deeper and deeper uh, down. And that is exactly what Jesus has done here for Nicodemus. Jesus is a master master teacher. If you want to learn how to teach, learn from Jesus. He says, okay, you didn't understand what it means to be born again. Let me explain what happens. Let me expand that. Let me go a layer deeper and tell you what this means and what takes place. And that is what he does here. He pulls back the curtain for Nicodemus and he pulls back the curtain for us regarding the details of our redemption. And we have to, to make some additional observations here. We have to notice the beauty and the, the glory of the new birth as it is seen here. Just like in, in verse 3, where we said that you must be born again. We saw that, that was, a, that was a, a verb, an action that, that was passive. Okay, active verbs meaning I'm the one doing the action. Passive verbs mean I'm the one receiving the action. And the verb born again here is is passive meaning that we don't birth ourselves god is the one who gives birth to us we don't decide hey i'm going to be born of water and spirit no it's something that takes place it happens to us we don't cause it to happen and our conversion meaning our repentance and faith is a result of god's regeneration of our hearts now, it is not the cause of it, but uh, these two doctrines of regeneration, God breathing new life into us, and conversion, where we turn in faith and repentance to God, they go hand in hand. They, they don't, they, you can't separate them out and look at them distinctly. We look at them distinctly in one sense, but then uh, they are inseparable and they occur at the same time. And one, uh, and you, you always see them together, generally speaking, in Scripture. Even here in John chapter 3, you have Jesus saying to Nicodemus, Hey, you must be born again, speaking of God's regeneration. But then just look over to verses 14, 15, and 16. What Jesus points to there is conversion. He's calling Nicodemus to turn in faith. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We see re- regeneration is inseparable from conversion. And one theologian describes it in this way, as the gospel comes to us, God speaks it uh, to summon us to himself. Or God speaks through it to summon us to himself. And then, uh, and to give us a new spiritual life, which is regeneration, so that we are enabled to respond in faith. That's how we need to see and understand salvation and regeneration uh, here. That is something that God does and performs in us. Uh, additionally, what that does for our understanding of salvation, sometimes we just think of salvation as being something that Jesus accomplished. Uh, but we need to see salvation as something that our triune God accomplishes in us. See, it was uh, ordained and planned by God the Father that he would save a people for himself through his Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. All three members of the triune God are involved in this. 
But here's also where this, this doctrine of regeneration becomes extremely practical. Right? That we understand that when we are regenerate, when God works in our hearts, when he takes that heart of stone out and replaces it with a heart of flesh, that we are no longer who we used to be prior to the new birth. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so this doctrine of regeneration is a hope and an encouragement for us in our battle against sin. How many of you battle against sin on a daily basis, right? All of us. And what gives us hope in that, that we can win that battle, that we have the power to fight that battle, is that God has done a complete overhaul in our hearts. God didn't just say to us in Scripture, hey, y'all are messed up. He didn't just say, you're, you're totally depraved and you're completely helpless But let me just make a couple of adjustments. Let me do some fine-tuning, and then you'll be fine. No, God says, no, I'm going to give you a complete engine overhaul. I'm going to completely remake you. Your engine and all of its systems are going to be replaced. I'm going to now give you the power to fight against sin, something we could never do without the Spirit giving us spiritual life, without regeneration. That's what enables us to believe it. It's what enables us to live the life of faith. And so it gives us hope in our battle against sin. It doesn't mean that we no, don't have to fight that battle anymore, right? Because uh, as we're driving along, we have these well-worn paths uh, of old sinful habits that we like to drive down, right? Have you ever driven home and realized that you didn't really pay attention, but you're suddenly at home? Like, I just know the way so well that I didn't even think about the turns and all of this. And you're like, whoa, that was kind of scary. How did, how did I get here? But, but that's where regeneration says, hey, I know you have these old habits, but now you have the power to develop new habits. Now you have the power to turn left when you used to turn right. And you're so used to turning right, you do it without thinking. We have the power to fight against sin. Those old sinful habits, those old former idols which we were enslaved to, those roads that we just had to drive down, we don't have to drive down anymore. We are now a new creation. Amen? And what he is proclaiming here to Nicodemus, that you must be born again. This is the doctrine of regeneration. It should amaze us our thankfulness and our worship and seeing and understanding how God has worked to save us. And then it gives us hope in the day-to-day living out of our faith from that point forward. That we live this life not in our own strength, but in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has clarified what it means to be born again in this statement. That you must be born of water and of spirit. And if And unless that happens, you cannot enter the kingdom. And entering the kingdom is synonymous with seeing the kingdom. And we see the the similarities and differences between verse 5 and verse 3. And after clarifying this, uh, we see then that the new birth is a spiritual birth. And Jesus' next statement is going to explain why that has to be the case. Again, Jesus is the master teacher. Here's the principle, now let me prove it to you. And that's what he's going to do in verse 6, where we're going to see that the the logic of the new birth explained. Look with me at that verse. It says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And in this verse, Jesus is not trying to to establish some kind of dichotomy, that the the flesh is evil and that the the Spirit is good. He's not trying to, to say that. That's not the point here. Uh, His point is actually quite a bit simpler than that. Jesus is just going to set forth uh, a rational and logical principle that like gives birth to like. Like generates like. Like begets like. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and continues to be flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit and then continues to be spirit. His point is that it's impossible for uh, one category to give birth to another. It's impossible for the flesh to somehow evolve into spirit. It's possible for the physical life to somehow create spiritual life within itself. And our sinful human nature 
cannot give birth to something that is spiritual. In Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So if we have that sinful human nature even at birth, how can we then somehow put on or give birth to a spirit nature? Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? It says, There is not one. Job is in agreement with Jesus here. That only the flesh can give birth to flesh and only the spirit can give birth to spirit. And the principle taught here by Jesus to Nicodemus is actually echoed and illustrated it probably uh, in an unlikely human source. You might not expect this, but uh, I saw it in one of my son's Dr. Seuss books by P.D. Eastman entitled, Are You My Mother? All along the way, so this, this baby bird uh, was hatched and his mother was out of the nest going and looking for food. Uh, and so this baby bird somehow survives a fall out of the nest. We won't get into that. It's not a very realistic children's book. But uh, this baby bird falls out of the nest and then goes around. It's a story about him going around and, and meeting all of these other creatures and, and machines and asking, are you my mother? Uh, and uh, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, uh, the baby bird is reunited with his mother in their nest. And he says this, uh, He says, yes, I know who you are. He says, you are not a kitten. You're not a hen. You're not a dog. You're not a cow. You're not a boat or a plane or a snort, which is what he called the big construction equipment thing. Uh, You are a bird and you are my mother. And and the logic and the lesson behind that children's book is the same as what Jesus is stating here. That only like gives birth to like because the, the point of reading that book with your child is you say, does, it, does uh, a kitten give birth to a bird? No. So it's silly to say for the, for the bird to ask, are you my mother? Like, hey, this bird should know, right? Uh, and that's the, the principle that Jesus is pointing to here, right? That only uh, like gives birth to like. When you plant uh, an apple seed, what should you expect? An apple tree. And then that apple tree, uh, when, when it drops seeds and, and, and fruit, uh, that its seeds are not going to reproduce a banana tree, right? It's only going to be what it was. And this principle taught here, very important and very practical, because it reveals the logic that explains why we cannot save ourselves, right? No matter how hard we try, if we are flesh we cannot create spirit within us it's impossible no matter what we do no matter how many times we pray or how many times we read the bible it is impossible for us to create spiritual life within ourselves spiritual life comes from god only the spirit can give birth to spirit and yet what is amazing is that the foundation of all works-based religions And in the world, you have two types of religions. uh, Works-based salvation and then Christianity. Grace-based salvation. So for every single works-based salvation, the premise is that you can save yourself. You can create spiritual life within yourself by doing physical things. But Jesus says, no, that's impossible. It can't happen. What's also interesting is that I've found that... There are many religions that also teach that you can save others through your religious good works. And they begin to say, hey, if you, if you pray so many prayers, you'll, you'll shorten someone's time in, in purgatory. Uh, or if you uh, go and are, are baptized for the dead, uh, that you'll save them. Or uh, uh, Mormon teaching uh, also says, hey, if, if you are a good Mormon... You obey all the rules and then you you get married in the temple that you will have a temple marriage and all of the children that come out of that temple marriage will be secured and saved eternally and you will be a forever family. Now, I can't think of a of a lie that would be more appealing to a parent, right? Because every parent wants to to be told you can save your kids. Wouldn't that be very appealing to you, parents? If there was something that you could do that would ensure the salvation of your children. That's extremely appealing. But Jesus says that it's humanly impossible. 
The flesh can't give birth to spirit, which means you can't save yourself and you can't save your kids or your parents or or some other loved one that you would so desperately want to be saved, but it is outside of your power and control to do that. Salvation is a gift of God, an act of the Spirit to impart spiritual life into the spiritually lifeless. It's Ezekiel 37. Dry bones and God breathing life into them. And as Jesus says these things to Nicodemus, I can, I can kind of imagine, you know, I have a sanctified imagination, uh, it runs wild at times, but uh, I can imagine this, this Pharisee, as he's being told these things, it, it's, it's shattering his entire worldview. Jesus is taking everything he's built his life on and said, nope, that's not happening, that's, that's wrong, that's false. Take all of that and toss it. And I would imagine as Nicodemus is hearing these things, he's probably you know, maybe sitting there with his mouth open just a little bit, right? You know, how, how can these things be? Is what he's going to say in verse 9. But as he says them, or as he hears them, he's probably in absolute shock and disbelief. And that might have been what, what prompts Jesus at the beginning of the next verse. We're going to see this, this next assertion that Jesus makes, that the necessity of the new birth is announced. And if you look with me at verse 7, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be amazed at that. And Jesus gives this command to Nicodemus. And it's a very, very strong command. He says, don't even begin to, to marvel. That's really the force there. Don't even start. Don't even start to be amazed or disturbed that I said you must be born again. But the force behind what Jesus is saying in this verse, it it only increases from there. Because he says, don't even begin to marvel at that. But then it becomes clear that, that as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he's not just saying, Nicodemus, this is what you and you alone need to do. This is a truth for Nicodemus and nobody else. No, this is a truth for all humanity. And it becomes clear because Jesus shifts from the singular to the plural. And so a more, I guess, a literal translation would read, Do not marvel that I said to you, singular, that y'all, you all, must be born again. He says, hey, everybody must be born again. And Nicodemus, don't be amazed that I said everybody needs to be born again. Don't even begin to marvel at that. This is not a command for one man. It's a command for all people. And so it's a pretty strong statement so far. Don't even begin to marvel that I said all of humanity must be born again. But it just gets stronger from there because that little word must... You must, y'all must be born again. It's loaded with theological weight. It's a word that describes something that is necessary. Something that must happen. But it's a word that describes something that must happen because it is according to the decree of God. Because it is in the will of God. It's used uh, in verse 14 of the same chapter, if you look there. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It is necessary by divine decree that Jesus be lifted up on the cross. Look at verse 30 in the same chapter. John the Baptist says, He, speaking of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. It is necessary by divine decree that Jesus increase, that Jesus be exalted, and it is by divine decree that John the Baptist be decrease. If you look at John chapter 4, verse 4, and he, he had to pass through Samaria. The same Greek word. It was necessary by divine decree for Jesus to go through Samaria, even though it wasn't the normal path, because Jesus had to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well So that she would hear the gospel, believe in him as the Messiah, and then go and tell others in her town. Later on, John chapter 10, 
verse 16, we see that it is necessary for Jesus to gather in other sheep of his fold, meaning the Gentiles must also be saved. And praise the Lord for that. But here what we see is that if anyone would enter the kingdom of God, they must be born again. It is necessary for that to happen. That is a, a powerful, powerful verse that, that Jesus laid out for us right there in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. There was a, a great traveling preacher in the 18th century. His name was George Whitfield. Uh, and he's believed by many to be the greatest proclaimer of the gospel uh, in the history of the church. And crowds flocked to hear him wherever he went. Uh, and uh, he went throughout the American colonies and back and forth between uh, America and England uh, preaching. Uh, and crowds would come to him. And Benjamin Franklin had doubts about the newspapers reporting of the crowds that had come uh, to hear uh, George Whitfield speak. Benjamin Franklin being the the scientifically minded man that he was. He's like, I don't know. I think these are kind of being exaggerated. How can one man speak and 30,000 people hear? That was what was being reported. So Benjamin Franklin did a little bit of research and uh, he wrote this about Whitfield's preaching voice. He he had a, a loud and clear voice and articulated his words and sentences so perfectly that he might be heard and understood at a great distance, especially as his auditors, meaning his audience, however numerous, observed the most exact silence. He preached one evening from the top of the courthouse steps, which are in the middle of Market Street, and on the west side of the second street, which crosses it uh, at right angles. Both streets were filled with his hearers to a considerable distance. Being among the hindmost in Market Street, I had the curiosity to learn how far he could be heard by retiring backwards down the street towards the river. And I found his voice distinct until I came near Front Street. And when some noise in that street obscured it, uh, imagining then a semicircle of which my distance should be the radius. Again, this is his scientific mind. And that if it were filled with auditors to each whom I allowed two square feet, I computed that he might well be heard by more than 30,000. This reconciled me to the newspaper accounts of his having preached to 25,000 people in the fields and to the ancient histories of generals haranguing whole armies of which I had sometimes doubted. And this is before the days of amplification. So George Whitfield was in essence a born preacher. Created by God, gifted with an amazing voice. And everywhere he went, and with every sermon that he proclaimed, he said that all people must be born again. And he was so clear about the necessity of the new birth that he said, it is the very hinge on which the salvation of each of us turns and a point on which all sincere Christians of whatever denomination agree. And a lady once asked George Whitfield, why every single sermon do you say you must be born again? He said, well, madam, because you must. Now, that was his response to her. He was so passionate about the new birth that you must be born again. And there are some passages in, in the Bible that, that are difficult to figure out the immediate application to us today. Right? You have to kind of really figure out, okay, what's the bigger, broader principle? This is not one of those verses. Okay, this is very clear what the, this verse calls us to do, what it is teaching, how it is to be applied. Now, not only are we to know and believe that we must be born again if we are to see the kingdom, but then we are to cry out to God and ask for that. Lord, if, it, if this is out of my hands, Lord, I realize I have to ask you for that. I have to ask you to be born again because it is utterly impossible for man to save himself. He must be born again. So Jesus uh, explains uh, the logic behind uh, the principle, uh, which he clarified in verse 5. And then verse 7, he announces the necessity of the new birth. And then just to, to take out one more layer and explain to Nicodemus what, what all this means, why it's significant. In verse 8, what we see is Jesus explaining or the mystery of the new birth illustrated in verse 8. Look at me at that verse. It says, The wind blows where it wishes, 
And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And you might be, you might be wondering why Jesus begins to speak about the wind here. Like, how did, how did we get on that topic? Well, this is another one of John's favorite uh, words with double meaning. Uh, and in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word for wind is the same as the word for spirit. It's the same word for breath as well, which we saw in Ezekiel. And so when Jesus speaks and says, hey, the wind functions and operates in this way, double meaning of, hey, this is exactly how the spirit functions and operates as well. And the wind blows wherever it wishes. No one controls it. No one knows its origin or its destination. We can't control it. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but we are able to see the effects of the wind upon objects. We're able to see the wind impacting the leaves on a tree. We're able to, to see it, to hear it. We, we feel the, the force of the wind when we are standing outside in it. You feel that little piece of dust that gets blown into your eye by the wind. And that is how the Spirit of God works in regeneration. You can't control it. You can't see it. But the results are clearly seen as the Spirit impacts people. And all who are born of the Spirit, it is evident that the Spirit has blown through their life. Okay? It's going to be evident where the Spirit has been. When the, when the Spirit works in us and through us, it changes us. It transforms us. That's what Jesus is seeing here. And here's the picture. And for some of us, the Spirit kind of came into our lives like a tornado. Right? We, we were uh, wholeheartedly living for sin. Uh, and uh, the Spirit came in, kind of picked us up, turned us around and says, All right, now go this way. And, and you saw and felt that abrupt change. It was dramatic. It was powerful. Our life was uprooted, and we know the exact time the tornado hit because our life has never been the same since that. But for others, and usually those who have grown up in the church, the Spirit may have worked as a, as a gentle breeze, subtly blowing, but constantly blowing, constantly working upon hearts, that you might not have realized the exact moment when you came to faith, because it was something over time, as, as you heard the word proclaimed, as you were discipled, as you read the Bible, just little by little, and suddenly you realize, hey, you, you look back and you say, oh, hey, the Spirit's been at work here. He has changed me. He has transformed me. It's been slow over time, but it has still taken place, and you can see the Spirit's work in your life. And a natural question that arises from this is, how can I know the Spirit has worked in my life. How can I know if I have been born again? Natural question. It's a, it's a great question. And it's just as easy to answer is, as, hey, is, is the wind blowing? You know whether or not the wind is blowing, and you know whether or not this, the Spirit has, has worked in your life. And what I would do is I would, I would commend to you uh, the list that we looked at from my sermon uh, on the end of John chapter 2 verses 23 through 25, I, I, in the sermon notes on the back, I gave you uh, a list that was in the MacArthur Study Bible that he laid out of, hey, here's the, the fruits of, uh, and the, the marks of genuine conversion. Uh, of How do you know, the, what, the, what does the, the Spirit blowing in your life look like? Uh, I would refer you back to that list, but here is in essence what he says. Uh, number one, it's, it's going to be characterized and demonstrated by you having a love for God. Secondly, it's going to be marked by repentance and turning away from sin. Faith and repentance go hand in hand. It's going to be also marked by genuine humility. A devotion to God's glory rather than your own glory. It's going to be marked by prayer. It's going to be marked by selfless love for others. A separation from the world. A spiritual growth that is obvious by obedient living where the spirit works the results are visible and they are going to be undeniable 
no matter what the age of a person. So during my years uh, working as a pastor overseeing children's ministry, uh, I would always have parents coming up to me asking about, hey, how do I how to share the gospel with their with their children, and then how to know when their children had had really come to know Christ in faith. And I always I would always say that the fruit of the spirit don't change for someone who's younger. Right? It's not a, there's one category of uh, the fruit of the Spirit uh, for those who are older and then another set for younger. Uh, it's it's going to look the same. Uh, the, the God Spirit working and bringing new life is going to be the same in a child as it is in an adult. It's going to be to varying degrees, uh, and children still have foolishness bound up in their heart. Uh, and so it's, it's going to be the same fruit, but not produced to the same level. Uh, and, and oftentimes that would be very clarifying for parents. They would be like, oh, never, I'd never thought about it that way. Uh, and so, hey, if, you, if your, your child has prayed the prayer and you, you've led them through that, just begin to observe them and call them to, to obedience and then see if they do that. If your kid continues to lie, steep and, and chill and beat up their siblings and have no remorse... There may be something to, to say about maybe they don't truly know Christ. Maybe they haven't been born again. But if you see a, a softness and a tenderness in your children's heart that, that looks like the fruit of the Spirit, that looks like, hey, I have a desire to, to love God and to grow, and I want to love my siblings, but they just drive me crazy. Uh, uh, but they feel remorse and, and repent afterwards. Those are the things to begin to look for, not just, hey, my child has prayed a prayer. And the fruit of the Spirit are going to be the same for all ages. And when such a change within takes place within us, when we are born again, when the Spirit has blown through our lives, we will see the effects. And others around them will notice as well. One pastor shares a story of a young man who came to church and was eventually uh, born again. And the young man told one of the elders at the church, I can't believe how much this church has changed within the last few weeks. Now, the hymns are so lively now and the worship is wonderfully meaningful. And why, even the preacher is better. Uh, so I would hope that would be the case. But uh, that's what we need to understand, uh, that we don't see regeneration taking place. There's no outward marks of it, but we see the results of it clearly in the same way that we see the wind blowing through the trees and see the results of the wind. And that is the, the second round of dialogue that, that Jesus has unfolded for us. And he, he's, he's shown us, he's, he's dug a little deeper, four layers in, in laying out the Spirit's regeneration of a person in the new birth. And Jesus clarified the nature of the new birth in verse 5. He explained the logic behind it in verse 6. He announced the necessity of it in verse 7. And then he illustrated the mystery of the new birth in verse 8. And we might be collectively thinking, Nicodemus has to understand this now. He, he's got to take it. And run with it. No, but even though it may seem obvious to us who have been born again, it's not always obvious. Earlier I mentioned uh, George Whitfield. He was born in uh, 1714 in, in Gloucester, England. And Whitfield was the youngest of six children. His father died when he was two years old. And then he was raised by his mother till he was alone when he was eight. And then she remarried. Uh, but then that marriage ended up in divorce. And so... When he was a teenager, uh, George was a, was a rough-and-tumble young man, you know, regularly engaging in lying and fighting and stealing. And, but he still had this remarkable mind. And when he was 16 years old, he began to read the Greek New Testament, to read and study. He was also proficient in Latin. And uh, began to, to read the Bible, the New Testament, in its original language, but he still didn't come to know Christ. He still wasn't born again. When he was 18 years old, he entered Pembroke College at Oxford University and he had to work as a kind of as a servitor for some of the other wealthier students in order to pay his way through college. And during the mounting demands of his studies and his work, now he had this guilty conscience that continued to haunt him. And so he steadfastly pursued a right standing before God just by his own efforts. He, he prayed three times a day and fasted regularly, but he found no peace with God through his own efforts. At the end of his first year at Oxford, he met another student named Charles Wesley, who would later become a famous hymn writer. He actually wrote, And Can It Be?, which we sang this morning. Now, and Charles introduced him to a small group known as the Oxford Holy Club. 
Uh, and the group included uh, Charles's brother John uh, and ten others who met regularly to pursue religiously moral lives. And despite the rigorous schedule that they set for themselves of Bible reading and prayer and fasting, and uh, not one of those students was actually born again. And they realized that later. Think about that. They're, they're, they're gathering together saying, hey, we're just going to do this. We're going to be religious. We're going to be morally right. We're going to save ourselves. And while, while still urgently seeking acceptance from God, gave Whitfield a book in the spring of 1735. So he's 21 years old at this point. The book was The Life of God in the Soul of Man by Henry Skugel. And it was in that book that Whitfield learned the necessity of the new birth. And that's also a great definition just of regeneration. The life of God in the soul of man. And it was at the age of 21, after five years of studying God's word and striving vainly in his own efforts, that Whitfield was finally born again and placed his faith in Christ alone for his salvation. He finally understood that and said, hey, this is when I came to faith. This is actually when I was saved. And the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, left for the mission field uh, in the the colonies, the colony of Georgia. And even though they were at that time, they would acknowledge it later, they still weren't saved even at that time. They're going to the mission field and they aren't genuinely converted. But as they left, Whitfield was placed in charge of the Holy Club. And it was at that point that he began to evangelize uh, and proclaim the necessity of the new birth there to his fellow students with great zeal. And he began to see people genuinely coming to Christ. Began to see the Spirit working in their life. And his his own experience of misunderstanding what the, the Christian life was all about that made him so passionate about proclaiming the new birth to everybody throughout the colonies and throughout England. Remarkable that you can do many things in the name of Christ and still not truly be born again. Isn't that amazing? And you could have this, this club of young men who want to who pursue holy lives, but they're going to do it in their own strength and in their own energy, which means that it was destined to fail. And that's what they realized. So we too must realize that. And we cannot begin to grow spiritually until we are first born. We have, we have no hope of reconciling ourselves. We have no hope of imparting spiritual life in our fleshly bodies, in our own strength and energy. God has to give us that life. Salvation is a gift of God. And we are called to look to Him in faith. And may that be what we all do. May we plead for Him to impart spiritual life that only He can provide. Because as Jesus says, unless a man be born again he cannot enter the kingdom of god amen let's pray father we thank you for the truthfulness of your word we thankful that you in your wisdom through your word by the power of your spirit have pulled back the curtain you have told us what you have accomplished for us in our salvation and we see and understand that Lord we could never save ourselves flesh cannot give birth to spirit so Lord we thank you for your grace your mercy your compassion your love that as while we were yet sinners you gave us life you sent your son to die to pay the penalty for our sins and now You call us not to regenerate ourselves, but you call us to respond to Christ in faith. And when we do that, Lord, we now realize that you are the one that enables us to do that. So we praise you. We worship you. Lord, may this doctrine of regeneration give us hope. May it give us encouragement that we can live the Christian life, not in our own strength, but because you have made us wholly new. And Lord, may our understanding of the new birth transform the way that we share the gospel and may it transform the way that we disciple our children. Lord, may we not call them to some standard that they can keep. May we not create a holy club within our families 
where our children strive to earn their salvation on their own. But Lord, may we proclaim to our children, may we proclaim to our neighbors, may we proclaim to the nations that you have called all people everywhere now to be born again, to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that we will see, that is the only way that we will enter into your kingdom. And Lord, how we long to do that. Lord, please be with us now as we go from here. Lead us and guide us by the power of the Spirit that dwells within us, who has given us life. And may we sing now of your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.